Got that one. Thank you. There it is. Hello, hooray, hurrah, once again. <clears throat> the Greg Roof Film Club convenes here in uh, Hollywood's most enchanting film confabulation, the Los Dilas 3, located right here in the groovy hipster district. Next door to Goldberger's, when you don't care about impressing your date. Tonight, we're going to be showing the 1954 classic by Jacques Becker, Touche Pas au Grisby, Hands Off the Loot. It's an unforgettable uh, French gangster picture. I'm a big fan of the French gangster pictures. Um, Jennifer chose this one like she chooses all of them. Uh, I've chosen two films uh, in the last seven years of the Greg Proops Film Club, and one of them was Return of the Living Dead. Thank you. See, I've got my people, Jennifer. Two dudes thought that was a good call, and that's why Jennifer is the curator of the Greg Proops Film Club. Um, Jacques Becker only made about 13 pictures uh, in his life, because he was summarily dismissed uh, from this realm and taken to the big cinema in the sky uh, far too early, as they say. Uh, and he said this, um, uh, which I love about him. I believe above all in Paris. And I think this is the kind of picture that really throws you into the center of the action in Montmartre. Uh, Jennifer and I uh, tend to go to Paris every year. We didn't get to go um, during the plague. Um, I know, people are like, what's the plague? Um, the COVID. Uh, I know, some of you are from America or have cousins and stuff, and they're like, there was no COVID, and, and Biden's not president. I'm like, I know, how do my cousins have time for this? Um, the, uh, uh, during the plague, we weren't allowed to go to Paris, but we did go after, and we've been going um, almost every year, as far as I can remember, to Paris every year. And men will say to me, because men tend to be fantastically um, clueless, if not fervent fans of the movie Return of the Living Dead by Dan O'Bannon. <laughs> Uh, say things like, why do you go to Paris with your wife every year? Thank you. A woman, I heard a woman's laughter just then. Uh, because <clears throat> I want her to continue loving me in an increasing way and not a diminishing way where it tails off toward the end and then I'm left to find my own apartment uh, on Hillcrest uh, and have to live by myself with my uh, record collection and my stereo that I don't know how to operate because she's never let me touch it. So uh, I'd rather my life didn't end sadly, uh, to use an adverb, I would rather my life ended happierly. So that's why I take her to Paris every year. And you might ask yourself the question if you're a gentleman out there and, uh, and you haven't taken anyone that you or in a relationship with two Paris in the recent decade. Why you haven't done that? That might be a more important question. Why didn't you go to Paris with the one you love? In fact, why did you make them go, uh, um, thank you, why did you make them go to the, Fred, uh, the Fat Burger in the car park that's down the road um, on their birthday instead of taking them to something fun? Um, what, why did you make them go uh, you know, to the uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house when you could have done something useful with your time. Uh, why did you take them, you know, to Raider Fest in Vegas or whatever when you could have taken them to Paris? Um, but that cuts into my money, Greg. Um, if you don't go to see a bunch of different French gangster films, after two weeks you'll have enough money to go to Paris. So uh, when you go to Paris, let me give you a couple of tips because uh, I'm a hipster and uh, thank you. Uh, I've been to Paris, and although my French is wretched at best, uh, I, I'm adorable, 
in the way that I approach it. And this is how you have to do it. You have to speak French to people in Paris. Um, I'm mean, not saying you have to like read Racine to them or, or, you know, or quote like pee off the minute you get near them. I'm saying you have to say bonjour. And then if they give you something, you say merci. And then when you leave, you say au revoir. And then that's enough, quite frankly. All they want you to do, they know you're American. Okay, look at you. <laughs> look at your haircut, okay? First of all, you'd probably be wearing a baseball cap, even though you're in Paris. Even though the baseball cap, if you haven't caught the wave yet, is the international symbol of making America great again all over the world. So I'm not certain why it retains its popularity, other than the fact that men adore wearing baseball caps, um, even though they're highly inappropriate in almost every situation. There are a couple of situations where baseball caps are appropriate. Say, for instance, you were a professional baseball player. <laughs> and a professional baseball match was taking place, and you were a participant in said match. <clears throat> then the cap looks awesome. Outside of that, you really do look like you're about to attack the White House, and all you're missing is a Viking helmet and a fur mankini to really complete your entire, and that you're not driving the Ford seditionist or whatever uh, up to the gates of the palace to make everything right again because you didn't get what you wanted because white people are never allowed to lose. They get so angry anytime they have the smallest loss uh, that they have to attack uh, the capital and whatnot. And uh, as, as soon as a black woman is elected vice president, um, all hell breaks loose in America following a black man who'd been president for eight years. That was pretty much the last straw, I think, having the black woman come in there because it really shouldn't say MAGA on the hat, make America great again. It should say, every time a black woman achieves something, my penis shrinks incrementally, I think is what the hat should have had on it. It's too big to put on a cap, but it's actually to more to the heart of the matter. A black woman was elected, a Jew and a black man were put in the Senate, and then the next day the Capitol was attacked. It's not a coincidence. Is this a film show? I'm getting there. <laughs> so when you go to Paris, don't wear a ball cap, and don't wear dockers, and don't wear tennis shoes with your jeans, okay? You're not doing an episode of Seinfeld. What you're doing is you're going to a sophisticated place where they invented uh, je ne sais quoi. What's je ne sais quoi? I don't know. Um, no one can say. That's why it's called je ne sais quoi. And what you want to do is uh, wear a blue blazer, perhaps. Uh, uh, conservative is, is good in Paris. Uh, you don't really, you don't need to wear leather trousers. You're not Jim Morrison. Um, you, you can wear uh, like a blue blazer maybe, uh, a shirt with a collar, uh, and, and shoes, like actual shoes that have leather in them and whatnot, not tennis shoes. And then when you walk into a place and the, you know, bling, bling, the little bell rings and the French people look at you, sing to them, go bonjour, like that. And they'll go bonjour, like that. And then when you uh, buy something, go merci, and they'll go uh, and then when you leave, you go au revoir, and they'll go merci, au revoir. And that's how it works. Sing to everybody. And if you don't know the French for what they're saying, point and make noises. Go, and everyone will get you. Um, because the French are like that. They're actually quite nice and pretty accommodating and really kooky. Um, Americans uh, via Britain have got this notion in their head that French people are rude somehow. French people aren't rude. Um, they're like New Yorkers. They're busy. And you're not part of their plan. Uh, the fact that you're there taking up time and stuff and that you walked in and spoke really loud in English to them and wore a baseball hat shows them that you are le bag de douche and that they want nothing to do with you. And so therefore they have x you out of their life and that's why they seem rude to you because you haven't approached them the right way. You have to have game. You have to have mad 
game. Like, for instance, we were in a restaurant a couple of years ago, a delightful little boite in the sixth, and uh, with a rickety ass staircase, like a total litigious, you know, Victor Hugo type staircase. It's sagging in the middle. You have no idea how it's still standing. The building is from like 500 years ago. And they take us upstairs, and uh, we order, and uh, I ordered an expensive, by that, there was a little neighborhood place that was like a 25 euro bottle of wine. So they were all over me, like um, um, Blanc Henri's. And uh, the waiter, I swear to you, looked exactly like a French Pee Wee Herman from the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was difficult to sit quietly through, but we did our best. And uh, then we went downstairs, and like they say, I said, French people have personality. They're, they're very funny, and they have a sense of humor. They have, in fact, a sardonic sense of humor, as you will find out uh, during this movie, where Jean Gabin calls his best friend Porcupine Head. Um, thank you. The, uh, I go downstairs, and uh, the man's got the check, uh, l'addition, and uh, there's a spike that you put the uh, checks on. I don't know if you, anybody remembers the spike. Uh, it was, it's a spike that was coming out of a block of wood, and you go like this, and put the check on it like that. Um, before, uh, everybody had a phone, and there was the death of conversation, and everyone was self-absorbed beyond all measure. Um, there were things like spikes at every uh, uh, cash register and till in the world, and they would take the check and stank it like that and that, even though it's the most dangerous thing you could possibly have. Uh, yeah. All I could think of when I, I worked in a pizza parlor in Burlingame in the 70s, and we had a spike next to the phone. And all I could think of was one night I'm going to be so high I'm going to slip and fall onto it. And in fact, it will poke my eye out. Hi, welcome. We're showing a French picture tonight, but I'm sure you're aware of that. This doesn't seem like the kind of movie that people have just wandered in and like, I wonder what's on tonight. Is it Touche Powell Grisby? Oh, très bien. Because we were going to go see a... a, a Superhero movie number 400. Uh, I know, people love superhero movies. Uh, if you like them, right on. At least you're going to the movies. We've, we've made that first step. <laughs> then after that, you're going to want to watch a movie where the denouement isn't that two people punch each other for 35 minutes. <laughs> it's my biggest, biggest, biggest qualm and my biggest argument with superhero movies. Fine, whatever, spider people, whatever they're called, justice people, and guardians of the people, all those movies, every single one of them, they have extraordinary superpowers, they can teleport themselves, they can fly through the air, they can make laser beams come out of their arm or whatever, and then at the end, they fight someone with their fists for a really long time, <laughs> forever and ever and ever, and that's how every single one of the movies ends. And when they stop doing that, when someone goes, you know what, I'm not gonna fight you, there, I just vaporized you with my mind. Now, let's move on and have some you know, delicious superhero food. Then, then that's when I go. Up until that, I'm gonna stick with the French gangster movie. So I go downstairs, and the guy's got the check. We're in a French restaurant in Paris. And uh, uh, he reads it out to me, right? You know, he's reading, he's reading it as he adds it up. Oh, un pâté de vin, blah, blah, blah. Un bistec, avec fruit, you know. Finally, he gets to the price, and he goes, like, it's uh, 80 euros. And because I know that French people are snarky, I go, there must be some terrible mistake. And he looks up and goes, well then, perhaps you should consult uh, Detective Kerry Callahan. <laughs> right? I told you they have game. And I said, really? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm coming back tomorrow night to get to the bottom of this. 
And he goes, for you, the mystery is never over. <laughs> Not a word of that have I made up. Uh, and several years ago, we were in Paris, uh, last year, rather. Uh, it seems like several years ago, because I've been in LA for two weeks. Um, but uh, in December, we were in Paris. And it was right after the French-Morocco match, right? Uh, that, that the football, right before the World Cup. And it was one of the qualifying matches. And when France plays Morocco, it's pretty cozy. You know what I mean? It's like when, if, if Korea played LA in football. You know, it's, it's one big team. And uh, so we're standing on the street, we're walking back to our hotel. And I hear a burgundy SUV at blaring at top volume, Le Marcier, right? Like in Casablanca, just loud, right? But I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I've never even heard <coughs> anyone in France play La Marseille, much less a burgundy SUV who's got the windows open and dope smoke pouring out. <laughs> She's playing the French national anthem, pulls up to the light in front of us, and I'm fumbling for my camera because I can't believe how good this is. And a dude steps up off the curb. He hands the guy a bag of weed and pulls away with the music playing. Ba -bum, ba -bum, ba -bum, ba -bum. And I was like, that was the best thing I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I've been around the United States a million times. I tour as a comedian. And I've been to like Texas and shit or whatever, but I've never seen, all right, let's say West Virginia. Let's get to the heart of the matter. I've been to West Virginia. I just played there last year. I never saw anyone pull up in a pickup truck playing like, Country road, take me home to the place. Hey, Delbert. Hey, Delbert. Here's your oxies. <laughs> and like throw a bag at him or whatever. Here's your fentanyl patch. It's, I, I've never seen it. Uh, I, it was the most obvious thing I've ever seen in my life. And I feel like we should call everything that happens like that from now on a French drug deal. When you kiss someone with your tongue, it's a French kiss. When you... Uh, a condom is a French envelope, right? I think when you pull up with the Marseille playing and dope smoke blowing out of your car and make a dope deal on the corner in Paris, it needs to be called a French drug deal at all times. If you've never seen a movie in Paris, you really owe it to yourself. There's loads of little cinemas everywhere, smaller than this one even. Um, by the way, this one, the Los Feliz uh, um, Trace, is... Uh, uh, a, a gigantic cinema palace compared to uh, many of the cinemas you go to in France. They would cut this one into like quarters. And, the, and fantastically, the bathroom would be up here, <laughs> sort of behind the screen, so that anytime you wanted to just discreetly use the bathroom during the show, you must make your way in front of everyone. And, and then, you know, le, le toilette and then go in, and then come back out, and then hi, everybody, and then make your way back to your seat. Um, French movies show all day, and they show a bunch of different pictures all day. I've seen a lot of different kinds of movies with Jennifer in Paris. We saw Die Hard with a Vengeance there. Yeah, when it first came out, uh, back in 1963, and Bruce Willis had hair, and... Uh, Die Hard, if you recall, the very beginning of Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's difficult, it occurs to me, remembering the beginnings of the Die Hard movies. Because if you're like me, I don't know that you've ever seen the beginning. Like, you know the movie Die Hard? I don't know if you're aware of it, like, he takes a plane to L.A. 
As, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the beginning of the movie, but there's a whole plane riding sequence in the beginning with smoking. Uh, smoking on the plane and smoking in the airport, so you get a good idea of what year it is. And, and by the way, this movie, if you've quit smoking recently, I'm so sorry for you, because this movie tonight doesn't just have smoking, it has people eating cigarettes throughout the movie. I mean, people eat, like, they, Be Betty Davis looks like she never had a cigarette in her life compared to Jean Gabin. Although I was watching Breathless the other night with Belmondo, and he's lighting cigarettes from cigarettes through the whole fucking movie to the point where I was like, I can't breathe. Um, the, we went to see Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance, which is the third one. And the very beginning of Die Hard with a Vengeance is a, a department store being blown up in New York. And as a, a set shot, and then the department store blows up. Even though John McTiernan is an awesome director and fantastic crime-doing felon, uh, who has done his time in jail and is out now, in case you were wondering. Uh, and yet they don't let him make a movie. And the crowd goes quiet. <laughs> Look, Bill Cosby's gonna go on tour, you guys. That's all I'm saying. John McTiernan, all he did was threaten to kill someone. He did a bunch of time in jail. He's a good filmmaker. Hear me out on this. <laughs> um, I mean, there's people who should be in jail for the movies they've made. You know what I mean? I mean, if, you, if there was a real cinema prison, would Yui Bowl be walking around? Let's, be, let's get even more to the point. Would Ben Affleck be allowed to walk down the street if there was movie prison? And on that tip, the Oscars are coming up again, and thank God uh, they've kept it as white and male as they always do, because the idea of letting women and black people in, you're just gonna fuck film up. Am I right or am I right? You know, Top Gun's nominated for Best Picture, and it's really hard to argue that a movie with as fresh a premise as Top Gun shouldn't be vaulted to the top of all of our show business here in this great country of ours. Unfucking believable. Top Gun nominated for Best Picture. Uh huh. I mean, I remember the first one, but the first one had the redeeming quality of Val Kilmer in it. Thank you. Val Kilmer's movie helper, even in the worst fucking movies in the world. He really is. He's Goldblumian in, in the help that he will provide a movie. Mm. So we went to see Die Hard, and it was a, a, a summer in Paris where there had been many terrorist attacks. So the movie, uh, at the beginning of the movie, the place blows up in the beginning of Die Hard, and the French crowd goes completely quiet. Because as well as having a wonderful sense of humor, they take things very seriously, and particularly cinema. For instance, we went to see um, uh, uh, The Bad Lieutenant uh, with Harvey Keitel, the Abel Ferreira movie. And as you know, Abel Ferreira, a filmmaker of delicate sensibilities, uh, often errs on the side of subtlety, I think, really. Well, I don't know if you've seen The Bad Lieutenant, but there's a... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, um, a terrible, terrible assault against a nun in the movie that's dragged out for all eternity. And uh, Harvey Cattell plays a uh, coke-snorting, crack-smoking New York detective who uh, has uncontrollable violent impulses. So, in essence, it's a documentary. Uh, and to the French, it absolutely was. There's a scene in the beginning of the movie where he's snorting coke in his car, and uh, the kids say something to him, and he yells at them. Then he goes to score drugs from his uh, drug dealer, and uh, the drug dealer goes, are you okay? And he's like, are you a fucking drug counselor or a drug dealer? 
then he loses a bet that he makes on the Mets, which leads to his eventual uh, downfall. And he shoots the radio in his car and then puts his police siren on top and drives away. And Jennifer and I were in hysterics at that point in the movie because it was hilarious and outlandish. And the French crowd was like, hmm. They really finally felt like they got a real handle on America. Now, of course, looking back um, at seeing the movie there and telling the story tonight, I feel like maybe they were on the right side on this one and that I was a bit flip about it. And uh, I'm enjoying this uh, so far. You're a very respectful crowd, you. You seem to honor everything I say with a moment of silence, and I really appreciate that. Very respectful. Uh, Truffaut had this to say about, oh, what was the other picture? We've seen a bunch of pictures in Paris, and like I say, you really ought to go, um, because the, the people there, uh, I've seen several movie stars as well, and we saw Daniel Atoy, the great actor, um, with a raincoat on, carrying a copy of Le Mans like this, throwing his head back in laughter, <laughs> in the rain. And I was like, is that really happening? Or, or has this been staged? And then the greatest time was, we were at this very, very right-wing restaurant in Paris on the Eel, that's just across the way from Notre Dame. And when I say right-wing, like right-wing politicians eat there and stuff. And they have one of those fantastically unspeakable French bathrooms that's literally a hole in the ground with some ceramic around it and whatnot. Mm. Just fantastic. And the food's really, really old school. Uh, like a hamburger with an egg on it and french fries or whatever, you know, or like a dead horse or whatever. And so we're sitting there eating, and it was a very blustery day. And the staff there is not exactly genial. Uh, they're uh, brusque. And uh, it was so fucking windy that the carafes were blowing off the tables, and one of them blew off the table whoosh, and crashed onto the, the cobbles, because the place is outside on the cobbles. And nobody made the slightest muscle movement to pick it up whatsoever. In fact, the waiter did this in their, in their apron and their tie, looked over at the wine that had just hit the ground and splattered everywhere and broken the bottle and went, and walked away. And then you think, yeah, this is exactly how I want things to be. So within moments of this happening and the wind blowing really hard, a silver Mercedes-Benz pulls up on the sidewalk, not on the street, onto the sidewalk. And there's those horrible barriers on the sidewalk in Paris, those metal barriers, right up next to them. Bang, bang, crash, stops the car. Out of the car gets a bodyguard in a suit with a fucking gigantic gun underneath his suit gets out of the car, opens up the doors, and a woman gets out with a little dog. And she has a very glamorous, with like a white sweater on. And then a gentleman gets out with a cane and an enormous dog. And they come toward into the restaurant, and it's Jean-Paul Belmondo. Yeah, he parked on the sidewalk and had a bodyguard with a machine gun. <laughs> so that he could eat at this place. His wife was super glamorous, paid no attention to him whatsoever, and never spoke or registered him during the entirety of the meal. She sat down, ordered, had a giant salad, and set to it like she had just gotten out of prison, like that. Her little dog sat next to her in the chair. Belmondo's dog laid at his feet, and everyone in the restaurant went, 
right? So now the waiters who had been ignoring us, not taking our order, not refilling our water, and letting broken glass sit on the ground with wine pouring everywhere, came out one after the next to shake hands with them. And, and then the maitre d' came out. And then, I swear to you, a chef who looked like the lady and the tramp with a gigantic mustache and a big chef hat came out and he shook hands. Every single fucking person who worked in the restaurant came out and shook hands with Belmondo. There was a German woman sitting next to us at the next table and she went like this because all of a sudden we're all ventriloquists, right? And we cannot move our lips anymore lest we be found out. She goes, do you know how that is? And I'm like, yes, it's John Paul Belmondo. And she is rigid like this. So he kicked my chair as he walked by to go to his table. And he turned to me and he went, Fadon. And I was like, <laughs> So he sits down and he orders a hamburger with an egg on it and french fries. And he got off the whole thing down. And then, that's Yiddish, he uh, received people. Everyone in the restaurant came out that worked there. And then every single person who was eating in the restaurant got up and came over to him. And he had had a stroke on his right hand. So he couldn't sign. And he was going, ah, ah, ah. So he shook hands, he took pictures with fucking everybody in the place for maybe an hour and a half. At this point, we've ordered everything on the menu. And we've ordered several desserts. And we've had coffee a couple times. The German woman is still sitting like this. <laughs> Finally, we're like, we have to go. We have to go. So we get up and he's still there receiving people. It was one of the great French movie moments of my life. Uh, and the fact that he passed away last year uh, uh, makes him even more immortal uh, in my mind uh, because I still see him kicking my chair. Uh, what was I gonna say to you? This, oh, Jean Gabin, who is 50 years old in this movie, but looks like um, he's been in a fight with Charles Bronson's baseball mitt. He's so, Right? He looks like Robert Mitchum's coverlet. He's just, everything has fallen. And he's 50, but he looks like he's a thousand. It's just awesome. And he calls people names, and he, he makes jokes through the home of a, he smokes a million cigarettes. And the first time Jennifer and I saw this picture in the movie theater, um, but this is a movie about friendship. Uh, there, there is the uh, unseemly thing of older guys with young girls in it, but that's really not the point of the movie. You'll find out as it wears on that this is a movie about being loyal to your gangster buddies. Um, there's a scene when they're on the run, surprise, and uh, they have to go to um, a throwdown crib. And when they get to the throwdown crib, there's a very exciting scene of him uh, offering his friend food and drink. I will leave it to you. Uh, so that I don't spoil the scene for you. Um, the first time we saw this movie uh, in, a, in, a, in a picture house, uh, when they got to that scene and they get to the throwdown crib, and by the way, his, throw, his friend doesn't know he even has the throwdown crib. That's how hidden the throwdown crib is. Um, the audience burst into applause for what happened next. And you'll soon see uh, that the reason why French gangster movies are so awesome is not only is there car chases and stolen gold and double crosses and rats and duplicitous dames and dark lighting, there's also pate. <laughs> and I think that's what really sets this one apart, ladies and gentlemen. I give you now from 1954, starring Jean Gabin, Jacques Becker's noir classic, uh, Touche pas au Grisby. <laughs> <laughs>